where we left off in part one of our tale of Olive Oatman, Olive was grieving the death of her sister Marianne, who succumbed to a severe famine that killed many of the Mojave Native Americans holding the girls in captivity. Olive's life was spared because of the mammoth efforts of her adoptive Native American mother, Espineo, to keep her alive by providing food that she refused to even share with her own tribe. At this moment, Olive must have believed that her only living relative had died, as her mother, father, and siblings were killed in a massacre in Arizona three years prior. What Olive didn't know, however, is that her brother, Lorenzo Oatman, had survived the initial attack in 1851 despite being severely wounded and left for dead by the Yavapais, and there were efforts underway to reunite her with her brother. Thank you for tuning in to Scattered Through Time, where we delve into some of history's quirkiest, most underappreciated, and exciting tales. I'm your host, John Mayle, and I'm thrilled to bring you all of the things you didn't know that you didn't know. At this point, Olive had assimilated into the Mojave culture. She was given a giant blue tattoo on her chin, and wore traditional tribal clothing, and was given a tribal name, Sponsa. She blended in so much that when an expedition surveying a railroad spent time with the Mojaves, they did not identify Olive as being a captive. It was shocking, then, when a Yuma Native American messenger named Francisco arrived at the Mojave village with a message from Fort Yuma, hundreds of miles away. Francisco reported rumors had surfaced that a white girl was living amongst the Mojaves and the United States was requesting her return or a reason why she chose not to return, while threatening to destroy the Mojaves if their demands were not met. But how did those at Fort Yuma know? That's where Lorenzo Oatman comes in. When he originally was recovering from the massacre, he did so at Fort Yuma, before relocating to San Francisco to get a job. But at a young age, he was given tasks beyond his years, and he soon injured himself in a lifting accident. And the city, which was exploding due to the 1849 gold rush, was filled with vice and turmoil. Not the kind of place where you'd want to try to make it at 16 years old, especially as a Mormon. Lorenzo soon quit working and made a return to Fort Yuma with one thing on his mind, as was described in Royal B. Stratton's heavily embellished captivity narrative. It is said, every hour, his mind was still haunted by the one all-absorbing theme, his sisters, his own dear sisters, spirit of his spirit, and blood of his blood were in captivity. For aught he knew, they were suffering cruelties and abuse worse than death itself at the hands of their captors. He could not engage steadily in any employment. Dark and distressing thoughts were continually following him. No wonder that he would often break out with utterness like these. Oh my God, must they there remain? Can there be no method devised to rescue them? Are they still alive or have they suffered a cruel death? I will know if I live.
Lorenzo did all that he could to find his sisters. He constantly monitored information coming from travelers from the east, looking for word of two white captives living among Native Americans. He tried to organize various search parties stemming from Fort Yuma to go and find the girls and bring them back, which never materialized for various reasons, including weather and a lack of pay. At one point, a party of five men joined Lorenzo in his search for his sisters, and they were unsuccessful searching in Southern California, so they committed to heading further north after stopping in San Bernardino to resupply. While they were resting, a letter arrived from a friend of Lorenzo's who claimed that someone had just come in from across the plains and stayed at Fort Yuma, where he had learned from the Yuma Indians that there were two white girls being held captive by the Mojaves, and that, quote, these Yumas had stated that they were part of a family who had been attacked, and some of them murdered by the Apaches in 1851. Once Lorenzo had that information, he quickly moved to meet the source of that bombshell, a man named Mr. Rowlett. Once he confirmed the claim, he asked that the information be published in the Los Angeles Star, which, as the captivity narrative stated, awakened an interest that the community had never felt before. Shortly after that was published, a man claimed that he had passed through Mojave territory, and Olive was offered to the men stationed at Fort Yuma for a small price, but the fort declined to pay for her. While this incensed Lorenzo, the report was proven to be false by those staffing the fort. They did receive a credible report, that there were girls being held captive by the Mojave, but there was no offer made to sell them to whites for any terms. Still, this put public pressure on the military at Fort Yuma to track down Olive and bring her back to the white world, as did a petition from Lorenzo Oatman, desperately pleading with the government to return his sisters to him. The Yuma Native American Francisco would be the one to mediate between the two sides. Now back to the encounter between Francisco and the Mojaves. Not surprisingly, the Mojaves weren't willing to part with their captive easily. They didn't respond to the demands communicated by Francisco, and they sent Olive into hiding. However, based on newspaper accounts at the time, this is a disputed fact. Soon after Olive returned for her captivity in 1857, a newspaper wrote the following. The Mojaves always told her she could go to the white settlements when she pleased, but they dared not go with her, fearing they might be punished for having kept a white woman so long among them. Nor did they dare to let it be known that she was among them. She could not go alone, for she did not know the way, and she despaired of ever again seeing her friends. Hope almost died within her. For three long years she mourned her captivity. Though well-treated, she was restrained, for she knew not how to extricate herself. What were her sensations during all this time must be imagined, for she is not, as yet, able to express her thoughts in language. That article suggests that the Mojaves were hiding Olive for fear of their own punishment, rather than trying to cage her in any notable way. Regardless, when Francisco arrived at the village, it was only a matter of time before Olive was brought back to Fort Yuma.
During the visit, the most crucial moments of Olive's entire story played out right in front of her. In the captivity narrative, it is said that she now thought what she plainly saw would be impossible, as she could only expect to be sold or barbarously dispatched, after all that had passed upon the question of her release. Besides this, she felt that with the knowledge she had now gained of the nearness and feeling of the Whites, it would be worse than death to be doomed to the miseries of her captivity, almost in sight of the privileges of her native land. And hence, through the reappearance of Francisco, was an occasion for new tumult, and her own agitation intense. She felt comforted in the prospect it opened of ending the period of her present living death. The reason for the tumult was a genuine divide in which the Mojave couldn't come to a consensus on what to do with Olive. Many were staunchly opposed to letting her go, even though Francisco said that the Americans were prepared to send enough men to surround and completely destroy the Mojave village. Some even suggested that the best solution would be to kill Olive, so that there was nothing to negotiate over. The Mojave also tried to convince Francisco that Olive wasn't white, and threatened her if she revealed herself, as she described in the narrative. I found that they had told Francisco that I was not an American, that I was from a race of people much like the Indians, living away from the setting sun. They had painted my face and feet and hands of a dun, dingy color, unlike that of any race I ever saw. This they did to deceive Francisco, and I must not talk to him in American. They told me to talk to him in another language, and to tell him that I was not an American. They then waited to hear the result, expecting to hear my gibberish nonsense, and to witness the convincing effect upon Francisco. But I spoke to him in broken English, and told him the truth, and also what they had enjoined me to do. He started from his seat in a perfect rage, vowing that he would be imposed upon no longer. After that attempted stunt by the Mojaves, things turned serious. The future of the entire tribe was riding on their decision of what to do with their captive, who a chief and his wife had taken in as an adoptive daughter. Francisco was adamant that he was not leaving without Olive, and Olive saw her mortality hanging in the balance. She captured that angst during her interview with Stratton, where she described those climactic days in vivid detail. Had I known all that had transpired, I should have felt much worse than as it was. I learned from Francisco since that the Indians had resolved, well, those who were friendly to my going, that for fear that the whites would come to rescue me, they would kill me as soon as it was decided I should not go. I had not as yet seen the letter that Francisco brought to me. I plainly saw a change in the conduct of the Indians to me since the close of the recent agitation. What it foretold, I could not even conjecture, but I saw enough before swinging my basket that morning upon my back to go out digging Otalika to convince me that the wrath of many of them was aroused. I struggled to suppress any emotion I felt, while my anxious heart was beating over possible dreaded results of this kind attempt to rescue me, which I thought I saw were to be of a very different character from those intended. The returning company came immediately to the house of the chief. At first, the chief refused to receive them. After a short secret council with some members of his cabinet, he yielded, 
The other chiefs were called, and with Francisco they were again packed in council. The criers were again hurried forth, and the tribe was again convened. At this council, Olive was permitted to remain. The speaking was conducted with a great deal of confusion, which the chief found it difficult to prevent. Speakers were frequently interrupted, and at times there was a wild, uproarious tumult, and a heated temper and heated speech were the order of the day. After much deliberation and argument, the decision was made to release Olive, at which she broke down in tears and finally displayed emotion that she had been holding back since her capture. Her adoptive mother, Espineo, was emotional as well. It is said that she cried for an entire day and night when the decision was made to give Olive away. When Olive left with Francisco and the rest of his party, she was joined by her adoptive sister Topeka for the 20-day walk back to Fort Yuma. In a major bit of irony, the actual trade terms suggested in the letter from the fort could only be read by Olive, so she read it to the group of assembled Native Americans. The Mojaves received six pounds of white beads, four blankets, and some other small trinkets, and Olive was allowed to return to the world she was taken from five years prior. On February 22, 1856, Olive Oatman arrived at Fort Yuma. She couldn't enter right away, and was made to clean up her face paint and the mesquite sap that the Mojave had used to dye her hair black. She was also made to cover up as her chest was bare, but obviously the tattoo stayed put. When she was able to enter the fort, it was a special moment as massive cheers went up from the crowd inside. After five years, this was the first authentic contact Olive had with white people. What happened next was even more of a thrill, as she was informed that her brother Lorenzo survived the attack in 1851. When the two were reunited in Fort Yuma a few days later, the story made national headlines. So they all lived happily ever after, right? Well, not exactly. The story of what happened after Olive returned to Western civilization is very complex. She had lost her fluency in English and needed to relearn the language, and was obviously traumatized by her long captivity. But it also appeared that she missed some aspects of Native American life. Her brother reported that she wept at night, and many friends found her to be depressed and even displaying a yearning to return to the Mojaves. Despite this, she put on a very different face when sitting for the interview with Stratton for his captivity narrative, which we've quoted extensively in these two episodes. She describes Native Americans in the worst terms possible, often referring to them as savages, while claiming that her tattoo was to identify her if she escaped, even though almost all Mojave women had facial tattoos of some sort at the time. Despite that fervor, or maybe because of it, Olive became one of America's first female public speaking stars as she lit up the lecture circuit all over the country, captivating audiences with tales from her captivity and dramatic retellings of her release. She was a superstar in an era when superstars were hard to come by, simply because of the sheer difficulty of moving people and information around the country. The Transcontinental Railroad wouldn't be completed until 1869, 13 years after she returned to Fort Yuma. While her return to the Western world brought her untold fame, 
Olive had to deal with her fair share of challenges as well. Her rumor circulated even before her return to the fort that she had two children by a Native American man. While Olive strongly denied that claim, just the fact that it was out there was damning in the ultra-conservative society in which she had returned. The Los Angeles Star even falsely reported that both Olive and Marianne had been discovered alive and married to chiefs, which was obviously impossible given that Marianne had passed in the famine. Olive remained in the spotlight for a while, especially after Stratton's book sold 30,000 copies. She'd give up lecturing after her 1865 marriage to John B. Fairchild and the birth of her first child, a daughter named Mamie. She would pass away in 1903 at the age of 65 from a heart attack. While she sits proudly posed in multiple photos, stories claim that Olive was ashamed of her tribal tattoo and would often cake her face with makeup when she would leave the house. Nowadays, her story is largely forgotten, but there are allusions to it in many old TV westerns, and the ghost town of Oatman, Arizona is named after her. It's important not to forget a story like this because it serves as a reminder that America was once a very wild place and that the native populations did not sit idly by in the West and wait for white settlers to colonize their land. Also, Oatman's fame shows the classic Wild West celebration of the macabre and curious, and I promise we will be touching upon that theme again soon on this show. If there's one thing I want you to take away from this, it's that the perception of Native Americans during that time period is very false. They were reasonable people. They were not savages, even though, in order to sell more copies, Stratton and Oatman might have claimed that. They saw the future of their tribe hanging in the balance, and they made a deal to give up their captive. That is not something that a savage, unruly people would do. Well, thank you so much for listening. I'm John Mail, and I hope you enjoyed this story. A reminder that we are on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Scattered Through Time, all one word, and on Twitter at Through Podcast, also all one word. Please tune in this week, and a reminder that if you have any stories you'd like to get the Scattered Through Time treatment, simply reach out and I'll try to make it happen. Thank you. <laughs>